Happy Memorial Day weekend, Boneheads. Yes, I've got my Ghostbusters shirt on. This is Joe Lewis. Just want to introduce quickly our guest. He's Mr. Peter David. He's a fantastic author, comic books, television, movies, novels. Go ahead, check this out. It's the first part of a two-part interview. We talk about Star Trek in this one. We spent over three hours. Mr. David was an absolute minch. We talked about Harlan Ellison. It's just a great interview. I'm not going to say anymore. This is Peter David. Wait, wait. Let, let me get. Let me just double check this. Your name again is Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis, and your name is the one with the hats, Chad. Yes. Chad, what's your last name? Jennings, sir. Damn it! I thought we had for a moment. I thought we actually had four people, both of whom have two first names for names. Oh, yeah, 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 that could have worked. You know, I never thought about Chad that. Chad screwed it up for us. Uh, that, that's, that's part of the course, sir. Yeah. Honestly, he always does. Never good. trust a man with two first names. Do you know who said that? I do not. Steve Allen. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, and yeah. we're, we're one of the few shows that actually is going to know who the hell Stephen Allen is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's true. If it so, makes you um, Go ahead. I, I do got to. I do got to tell a quick story, real quick. So is, um, you know we're interviewing him, right? I know, but yeah, by still I'm going to tell Mr. a story. David, so, this is very so late, by the man. way, eat my ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, I I texted the guys and said I might not make it. We uh, I've I've kind of had a hectic day, and we me and my family just got home, and my kids were a little a little frantic. Uh-huh. And I talked to my six year old, and I said, uh, "Honey, can you be, uh, can you go upstairs with mommy and be good for me?" Um, I'm going to talk to somebody tonight. And she goes, well, who are you talking to today? I was like, I'm talking to a comic book writer. And she's like, oh, well, what do you write? And I said, oh, he wrote Supergirl. She's like, you go talk to him right now. <laughs> it's good that she actually understands what I do. There are many, yes. many small children where the parents bring them over and try to explain to them that I write comic books. And the kids literally do not understand what the parents are saying. <laughs> I mean, they they cannot wrap their heads around it. What do you mean he writes Spider Man? What do you mean he writes the Hulk? They don't get it. Well, I mean, ever since my daughter, thing- ever since my daughter was three, um, ah. you know, I've, I have a huge comic book collection, so I let her pick through my comic books, and then we'll sit, and then you know, I'd sit down and read to her, and I would discuss the paneling and how the story is told in the different panels right. and the direction that they go. And of course, she's a big fan of Supergirl, and uh, oddly enough, the Mighty Avengers. She she liked that story arc. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the best letter we ever got at Marvel was from a kid. I mean, the letter was written in crayon, <laughs> and the letter said, "Dear Marvel Comics, does Peter David write Spider-Man's jokes, or are they ad libs?" <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> and we ran the letter. And I, and I, because I was putting together the letters column at that time, and we ran the letter, and my response was, they are indeed ad libs. Everyone here knows Peter David has no sense of humor. <laughs> That's fantastic. I know. Do you have the letter still? Oh, good Lord, no. Oh, my God. I, I think I would have just warmed my heart and made me laugh my ass off all at the same time when I was No, that was, that was Marvel's property. I used it when I typed it up for the letters column, then I gave it back to Marvel. Well, like I said, we're really laid back. We're really yeah. excited about this. We're, we're fans. There's two things I want to say as we start. Actually, you and James and I, the one with the glasses, met many, many years ago. Two of you were wearing glasses, but okay. 
Well, he's the one with the sunglasses is what I meant to say. Got it. Okay. And we met many, many, he's the one with the PhD. So many, many years ago at a place called MadCon in Madison, Wisconsin. I remember it very well. I remember it very well too. And it was great because James and I both left there with a Harlan Ellison story specific to each of us, things okay. he did to both of us. Okay. Now, you said something to me and James, or James and I, I should say, and okay. it has stuck with us, and we have used it many times where this, you are going to be either 133 or 134 um, episode, or 134th episode. And okay. out of a lot of people we've interviewed, we've often used you as an example to ask this question. The last oh, question would have been, see Courtney Joyner. Okay. Do you know Courtney Joyner at yes. all? Okay. So we often say, what's your best Chuck band or Charles band story? We know a guy who said, I'm the only person that he doesn't owe money owe to. Owe money to. That is correct. You have, I have to give you credit. I've never had the chance to say, we didn't have the chance to tell you that at Frankfurt Con. And I <laughs> thought it was kind of awkward in front of an audience to do it at that time. Well, you can actually credit my then representative because <laughs> she was merciless. And staying on top of Charlie and making damn sure that he paid me. I mean, she, she, I mean, he, she drove him completely insane. He paid me just to get her out of his life. So, <laughs> I have to tell you though, Courtney Joyner assures us that Charlie doesn't owe him money either. Good. Excellent. But by the way, you're the two. And we ah, the two. We talked to quite a bit of Charlie band. Yes, directors, production. Yeah, you're the one. You are you. You're one of the two. Yeah, and both Excellent. of the writers. Yes, awesome. and the writer is always the one who gets screwed. Generally speaking, yeah. I find. It I mean, Charlie treated me pretty okay. I mean, when we filmed Transfers, he flew me. He flew me out to uh, Romania for a week. Uh -huh. uh, when we filmed Oblivion, he not only flew me out, he flew my father. Um, and then we were actually able to, you have to understand, my father came to America from Israel. Uh -huh. He was originally born in Germany, and uh, they fled Germany when the Nazis came in. Right. So he came to America to be a movie star. It never happened for him. I mean, he tried, he endeavored to take on acting, but the bottom line was that he couldn't cope with the rejection. That is part and parcel of trying to be a movie actor. He just, the concept of, you know, 85% of the job is auditioning. Mm -hmm. And you fail at the vast majority of those auditions. Right. And he just could not cope with that. However, when he flew out with me to film Oblivion and Oblivion 2, the sequel that was shooting right. at the same time, I managed to actually write him into the movie, into Oblivion 2. Um, oh, yeah. He's, um, there's a sequence in, the grocer in, in Miss Maddie's grocery store where he's there and he's a shopper he's, and he's looking at some stuff. And a character named Mr. Gaunt walks in. Now, Mr. Gaunt is a psychic mortician. <laughs> he knows when someone's going to die. Yeah, and so then shows up to catch the body when it falls, so it doesn't get banged up. So the problem is, whenever he goes anywhere, people who see him immediately freak out 
because they're afraid they're about to die. So I had him walk into the grocery, I had Mr. Gaunt walk into the, the grocery store. Mr. Gaunt, by the way, was played by an actor named Carl Stryken. Mm-hmm. Carl is almost seven feet tall. You would know him from playing Lurch in the Adams Family movies. And the excellent oh, yes. Dr. Sleep. And the excellent, yes, exactly. So his character walks in, and my what I put in the script was that my father's character is supposed to turn, see him, and run out of the store. And my father said to me, before we filmed, he goes, now what's my line? And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, my line, what do I say? And I said, hold on a moment. And I went over to the director and I said, my father wants to know what his line is. <laughs> and the director said, you're the writer, write him a line. And I came, I go back to my father and I say, okay, I want you to say, I think I'll come back later. And then you run out. And the funny thing is, you know, we shot the master shot. And then the director said, okay, we need to go in for Gunter's close-up. And my father goes, I get a close-up? And he (laughs) says, yes. And my father says, I have been waiting my whole life (laughs) for this moment. The funny thing was, when we shot the master shot, he just said, I think I'll come back later and ran out. When he was in close-up, he suddenly started, he developed a stammer. Why? Because it would prolong his screen time. Ah, was it because he was nervous, huh? No. No, <laughs> it was, he, he, he realized that if he stammered, he would be on longer. And so it was like, so when he was in close-up, he went, I, I, I think I'll come back later. And ran out, uh, which was hysterical. And we all knew that that's what he was doing, but nobody called him on it. And, you know, he was so thrilled that after coming to America when he was a teenager, he finally got to be in a movie. He finally, he was so happy with me for writing him in. The funny thing was the director, you know, when I suggested putting him in, the director said to me, will he grow a beard? Because I want all the guys in, in the town in oblivion to have beards. And he's and I said, I have never seen him with anything more than five o'clock shadow for my entire life. <laughs> but to be in a movie, I can guarantee you he will grow the beard. I met him at the airport five, six weeks later. He looked like Tevya. <laughs> Big, thick full gray beard. It was Walking in like this. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he wasn't, wasn't dancing, but he had that, that, that sort of beard. I just yeah. always thought that was hilarious. That's fantastic. So well, gotta go take it. No, well, no, no. I love the story. <laughs> no, it's okay. But I, I do have the same question. What's sure. the, what is the craziest, most bat shit thing you can say about Charles band, Charlie band, what's your best Charlie band story? Because we always ask anyone who's worked with him, it's not just you. Um, I don't know if I have any really bad shit stories because, as I said, he treated me pretty well. Yeah. You know, he flew me out there. He flew me out there uh, for my father, Uh with my dad. Um, This has nothing to do with Charlie, but I will always remember... When I was in Romania, they gave me a per diem. 
and it was called uh, the, the Romanian currency is called lei. Mm-hmm. And I was tipped off, and it, it was a fairly sizable uh, per diem. I mean, I didn't really spend it on much of anything. Yeah. But um, I was tipped off that when you're leaving the country, they will only let you leave with 500 lei, which is like a buck and a half American. And by the time I was getting ready to leave, I had about 20,000 lei on me. And I gave it to the guy who they had given to a comp- they given to accompany me mm-hmm. the entire time that I was there. He was my he was you know he, he took care of everything that I needed. I gave him the 20,000 lei and he was astounded because that's as much as he makes in, you know, a year. And mm-hmm. I, I said to him, buy something nice for your wife with it. I said, they're just going to make me give it to the security guys at the airport who are going to shove it into their own pockets. Right. And he said, okay. I talked him into it. And then when I went there, I went through security. And the guy is, is a tap, you know, he, he's going over, he's checking me. And he taps my wallet with his security thing. And I said, that's not metal. It's not setting off the detector. Why should I take out my wallet? He says, we want to see your wallet. I went, okay. I took it out and I stood there with a smile as he looked in and found 490 lei. <laughs> that was it. And I said, there, I smiled. And I said, what did you think you were going to find? <laughs> and he scowled at me and just had to me my wallet back. But I always remember that that nasty security guard who was looking to just make some money from this stupid American who he didn't realize heard about, you know, this stuff. I mean, I have all kinds of stories from when I was in Romania, but none of them relate directly to Charlie. No, no, that's fine. The main thing that I remember about Charlie was that he got into major financial problems with the studio that was financing it. Um, I'm blanking on what it, which studio was. I think Paramount. it was Paramount. Paramount. What? He had, a, he had a deal with Paramount. Paramount, he, I was he right. Was skimming the money, right? They were spending. They were giving him this money to make the films. Yes. They were going. It was going to other places. Yeah, like his house, like his accounts. He had a castle. Yeah, right. and basically, what happened was, Paramount went through the books while we were filming Oblivion. And Charlie's entire world came crashing down because Paramount discovered that the money that he was supposed to be spending on the movies, he was basically spending on himself. Yep. Right. And so I was, I was witness to that. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the, you know, all kinds of, hell, I remember when we were uh, filming Trancers and, you know, we were all having dinner and word came in that River Phoenix had died. Mm-hmm. And a number of the cast members immediately immediately said drugs. Right. They didn't have to wait. They didn't have to hear a coroner's report. They knew drugs. You know, so apparently it was an open secret in Hollywood. Right. So what was what was it like working in Romania? Did you did uh, I mean had you you'd probably not been there before before Never. you were in the movie. So No, I no, I was I was never there and 
The funny thing was we received instructions that we should definitely not wear any clothing that would identify us as being from America, which was interesting considering when I would be walking around town, there would be people walking around with, t with sweatshirts at Columbia, uh -huh. you know, Harvard, you right. know, they're, they're wearing all these American shirts and I, who's from America, was not allowed to wear them. Okay. Um, I th the Romanians were very proud people, very proud people. Um, the, my, 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 my escort was constantly boasting about how they gotten rid of what Ceausescu, I think that was his name. I, I don't know. Yeah. James yeah. They, they, they gotten know. rid of they, when whenever we'd be driving around, he'd go, ah, this was Ceausescu's house before we threw him out. Ah, this was where Ceausescu did this before we got rid of him. I mean, you know, it was, it was really kind of hilarious. But they were very proud people. Um, probably the most insane thing that happened while I was out there was um, we had an actor coming in to, to play a small part in one of the Trances movies. Uh, the actor's name was Lachlan Monroe. You may know him. He played, uh, he plays Betty's murderous father on Riverdale. Uh-huh. Okay. And he was coming in to play a small part. And I have absolutely no idea why. But when I met him, he didn't know who I was. And they asked me to give him some papers and that kind of thing. For some reason, I affected a Romanian accent <laughs> and told him that my name was, I was Mr. Vlad. <laughs> Mr. Vlad from the movie studio. And I put myself forward as Mr. Vlad and gave him these papers. And he said, thank you, Vlad. It's for, you know, he completely bought it. Absolutely bought it. And I managed to let the other Romanians know what I had done. And everybody played along. <laughs> they would talk to me in Romanian. And I would reply buggering together language as best I could with about the like nine or 10 Romanian words that I had picked up. Also to put myself forward as a member of the crew, I had them teach me how to say, um, God, I remember what I said. It was Liniște Varog. I don't remember what that means. It was something like quiet on the set or something that you'd always say right before the camera was about to start rolling. And I would go, as if I had like some job there. And the crew just freaking ate it up. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I mean, when we were breaking for lunch, I automatically went and sat down with the cast. And Tim Thomerson said, Vlad, what are you doing here? You should be sitting with the crew. <laughs> and I realized that he was absolutely correct. So I mean, thank you, Mr. Thomasin. I, I forgot. And I went over and sat with the crew, and they were astounded <laughs> because they have a very strong sense of division of groups. Class and, system. Right, a, cl a class system, right. And I, as an American writer, was much higher in the class system. The concept of me lowering myself to sit with the crew was unthinkable. And yet, without hesitation, I went over and sat with the crew and chatted with them. And they were astounded. 
And it brought me into their confidence. And later that day, one of the crew guys comes over and he says, Mr. Vlad, Mr. Vlad, come with me. And I went, okay. And I went, I went over and they brought me to another building. They had caught a fish from a pond that was there and they had cooked it and they were going to eat it. And they invited me to share their meal with them. And I'm thinking, this is the pond where I saw dogs peeing before, you know. Yeah. So, number one, I'm not that wild about fish. And number two, I was convinced I was going to get food poisoning from it. But if I had turned them down, that would have been a huge insult. Huge. I, I, I couldn't do it to them. So I thanked them profusely and I sat down and I had some of the fish and then I sat up the whole night waiting to throw up or something, which I didn't do. I was fine. So no food poisoning. It all worked out great. And the next day we wound up at, you know, no, I'm actually the American writer. And he, <laughs> it was great. We actually have him on film going, what? Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was absolutely hilarious. I'm hoping I get I run into him at a convention. I hope he winds up going to a convention or something. Why not? He was in Riverdale. So yeah, absolutely. I hope, I hope he goes up to he comes to a convention and I go, "Hello, Miss Mr. Lachlan. My name is Mr. Vlad. You remember me? Yes. You know what the hell? But uh, you know, so I, I really did have a lot of fun when I was over in Romania, and I'm really you know grateful to Charlie for that. Yeah, like I said, the two writers that we've had on the show, uh, the actual director of Jeff Burr, I don't know if you know him. I think no. he was in, he was originally a gentleman in my ride. He was going to direct Oblivion. Is no. That what he told us? Not no, he, was, he was doing something else. It was something adjacent that Charlie banned because he and said he something about. he promised him Oblivion and it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I okay. didn't know how much of you knew about that. But No, Sam Irvin was the only director that, do you know who directed the, uh, pup, uh, the uh, Transfers films? Uh, act, a director named David Nutter, okay, who went on to some degree of fame. Uh, he television. directed a number of episodes of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for television. So, I know I've asked a lot of Charlie Brand questions. A low, I, and I know my friends here have a lot of comic book questions for you. So oh, okay. Very well. I, Go ahead. But before I hit comic book questions, I have to ask. Well, hold on one moment, Kath. Can you bring me one of my uh, great mouse detective cells? Ooh. And a bourbon. <laughs> I just want to point out, uh, he didn't buy that poster. A certain friend of his got that for him. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, it's, but it's one of my favorite Disney films. It's always been. Oh, I know. I love it. it I, that, that's the one. If, they, if they're going to do directed, well, now direct to streaming, I guess, sequels, yeah. I wish they would give that one a shot. Oh, here that we are. Is, oh, wow. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, wow, that is amazing. It's one of yeah. several that I have here. Yeah. Oh, that is beautiful. Yeah, you have the yeah, I have the background. Yeah, I, I loved Great Mass Detective. That was terrific. It is. Uh, it was uh, when I was uh, younger. I t actually took my younger sister to see it. So I think uh -huh. the first film fell in theaters. So, uh, but, but the question I had to yeah. ask, and you, you probably get asked questions about this all the time. Okay. But this is... Uh, one of my favorite books of yours, Howling Mad. Excellent. Thank you. Um, it's, it's, I, I literally, it's a book that I constantly say, you need to read this. And then people <laughs> say, where can I find it? And uh -huh. I'm like, 
I'm not sure. Um, so I, I know for a you while. You can buy used copies off of Amazon for like 90 cents. Oh, good. Well, I'll, I'll pass it because it is, I, I don't know how, as we've had resurgence in horror and, and werewolves have been big. Has this ever been, have you been approached to adapt this to a film or anything? Because it's such a great story. Oh, yeah. I've been, it's been, it's been optioned more than any other project of mine. And what's happened every single time is that the people who option it produce a script that varies widely from the uh, book and then they can't sell it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> gee, what a shock. It's, it was optioned by Roddy McDowell. It oh, was really? op, It was optioned by uh, the people who produced the uh, TV series Castle. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, yeah, lots of people optioned, and no one's made the freaking thing. Well, I, before I, you I go just, on, hold on. How the – you – talk a little bit about Roddy McDowell, who may be one of my favorite actors of all time. Sorry, before we get I, – I, He not, had – I never actually met him. He had a production oh, okay. company. Right. Um, he was actually going to do Fright Night 3, Fright Night yeah. Part 3. He was going to produce it, and uh, yes. the Menendez boys killed that, literally. Yeah. There's a long story there, if you ever... Okay. Yeah. Uh, but no, he had a production company, and they brought in someone to write the screenplay. And for the, the first thing they did was they eliminated the vampire character. Huh. You know, they, they took out Duncan the Homeless Vampire, and I said why the hell are we taking Duncan the Homeless Vampire out of the book? And they said, because no one's going to believe a movie where you have both vampires and werewolves. Huh. So of That's course, a... what before. Yeah. You know, the I mean, whole, la- what, I'm not laughing at you. It's just funny as hell, isn't it? I mean, putting aside Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Right. Um, putting that aside, you have a whole goddamn series of films about vampires versus werewolves. And then you have Buffy the Vampire Slayer oh. and werewolf characters. So, you know, my putting them both into the same universe is at this point standard operating procedure, but Ryan McDowell's people could not wrap their heads around that concept. You, you forgot you missed one too, one that was actually a, a huge success in the 80s, the Monster Squad. Oh God, yes. Yeah, so, Monster the, uh, Squad. Well, I, I just, and, and this is, uh, I, I love your writing. I'm a big fan. I, I, this is a huge honor for me. And, and I love meeting you at MadCon because I love everything that you write has the most human and characters in it. And, and, but there's always this undercurrent of humor because, and I think that's because life is just inherently funny and you always capture that. And and to everybody listening, go buy Howling Mad, find a copy, and become like me and dream that it will one day be a movie that follows the book. I yeah. actually written a screenplay version of it. No one's made it. Let's uh, speaking of Harlan Ellison, as we did earlier, it's uh, it reminds me of him talking about uh, you know, and then they say, well, we we have to envision your working. No, no, I envisioned it for you. Just yes. film what I wrote, and that's so that's interesting that this has been optioned so many times because. It's yeah, and yet it, it's never been made because they insist on doing something completely different. They insist on changing the thing that they liked enough to give me money for it in the first place. Can I, for our for our audience, when they option a screen or when they option your book, they're buying an option to buy, right? To produce. Can you explain that a little bit to them? They are giving money so that they are the only people in the world 
who can make a motion picture of it. Right. That's what an option is. It goes, the, the option period, depending upon the contract, ranges from 12 to 18 months. Um, so like I said, and, and usually contracts have it that they can renew the option as well. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of things get optioned. The vast majority of things that get optioned don't get made. Right. There are screenwriters who make a very comfortable living writing screenplays that never get produced. Yep. They paid a couple hundred thousand dollars for each screenplay, so they're doing fine. Yep. Yeah, no, we've we've and we've met several of them, and there's people who literally have had nothing produced. Yeah, who have made a living for many many years. So, oh yeah, and it, but it's very hard if people don't understand how the business and the industry works. Of mm-hmm. a complete waste of money explaining that to people, they just don't understand. That's the reason I wanted you to thank you for taking a second to explain that to our audience. I mean, I, I love the notion that you you know you can meet someone who says, "Oh yeah, yeah, what do you do for a living?" Oh, I'm a very successful screenwriter. Really, what have you written that I would have seen? Nothing. <laughs> or they're a script doctor. Yes. And or a script a doctor is something else entirely. Right. And then they make a lot of money for very little time. And it's like, what oh, are you yeah. Well, what? Your name's not on it. <laughs> it's not going to be. And the uh, and, and explaining how screenwriter, uh, how arbitration works in the screenwriters guild. This oh, who's not in the whole other. Oh, that's a whole thing. That's Although, actually, the best question I ever got was I was doing a book signing at, actually, I think it was Borders, which shows how far back this was. Yeah. And a guy walks up to me and he says, so you're a writer? I said, yeah. He says, have you written anything that I might have read? I said, well, I don't know. What do you like to read? He says, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And he was in a Borders? I didn't know which was more insane. That he would ask me that question, yeah, knowing that the answer is going to be no, because he doesn't read anything, or that he was in a bookstore. Well, yeah, was there I a mean, coffee it's like shop there? In, it's like walking into a butcher and saying, what can you give me that I would like to eat? You know, And the guy right. would say, well, what meat do you like to eat? And he'd say, I'm a vegetarian. What are you doing in a butcher? <laughs> Now, wait, was the borders connected to a mall? <laughs> um, no, it, 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 okay. it, was at, it was in an outdoor mall. Okay. Uh, okay. That was all I could think of was he was in there to get his scone. Oh, yes. no, 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 no. Th- this was before. I don't even think borders ever had. Cat, the borders ever have a scones, that kind of thing? I don't know. Oh, okay. I, yeah, maybe I, I, it was. I, but no, it's not connected to a mall. Okay. <laughs> I, I, so either way, this guy's a dumbass. <laughs> dumbass. But it's a great story to tell later, isn't it? I mean, oh, aren't yeah. you glad he entered into your life to make you realize that everybody's like the American people's like, holy shit, no, 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 no. Pretty much. Right. So how hard is it for your when you're a writer? And I guess it depends on the level, uh, the success of the book, the property, what it is you're doing, to have it built into maybe your option that you get first past it said screenplay before they hire someone else how difficult generally is that? speaking impossible impossible yeah I've always unless, that's unless, a question i've never actually got to ask because i don't know that we've had a ton of we've had several authors and then we've had screenwriters and and you are both and if I was, you are an a-list writer right and by a-list i mean you've written you've written screenplays that were successful uh-huh then yes, if they come and they say they want to option your book, 
you can make it a deal breaker that you're going to be writing the script. Because if you're an analyst writer, they can say, yes, and we have the writer of the book who not only wrote the book, but also he won the Oscar for this film, you know. Mm -hmm. If that's not you, if you're a B-list writer, no. They will generally never promise to uh, have you write the screenplay. This is, it's a question I've always wanted to ask and I've never been able to. So thank you so they much. They want to have a writer attached who has some screen credits. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean big deal screen credits. Yes, I've written for Charlie Band. That generally will get me more pity than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something you can convince an investor that they should put their money into it. You want to have someone who has written films that they would have heard of. Right. Understood. Thank I you. I mean, they could say, we have Peter David, the writer of Oblivion. And they go, oh, my God, yes. I mean, they're not going to realize it's not the Tom Cruise movie. Tom oh, Cruise film. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, I'm sorry. I was, I was waiting for them for the next question. Yeah, well, the, no. Uh, so let me ask you about transit. Uh, so about more about writing, because you've pretty yeah. much written it all. You've written TV, you've written that's, movies, you've written comic books, you've written that's novels. That's why I bill myself as being a writer of stuff. I don't want to be categorized. Yeah. I've written so many things. It's not like science fiction writer, Peter David, novelist, Peter David, t television writer, Peter David. Screw it. I just write stuff. So, so how transitioning between all those different formats i mean how how do you work that out like especially when you're when you're doing multiple ones at the same time like you know you're writing your novel and you're writing a tv show at the same time but then you're also working on a screenplay i mean how does that i it, mean, I know, mean I, if anything that's just the level of your talent i honestly don't understand the question because oh. what i mean well, no, no let me let me explain okay if you go to the gym and you're working out yeah and first you're doing you're raising weights Right. And then you're going to start working your legs. Do people ever say to you, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you know when to use your arms and when to use your legs? Don't you ever get confused? Don't you ever like <laughs> kick somebody when you meant to be raising weights? You know, I fall down a lot. <laughs> you really don't. I, you really don't. I actually should joke. I was once walking on a treadmill and I fell off the treadmill and, and broke my back. Not broke it but fractured uh cartilage i had to go in and have it operated on so that was fun yeah but um it's just a matter of telling stories in different formats you know and being aware of what you can and can't do if you're writing a novel you can write an entire chapter where two people are sitting in a room talking mm -hmm. as long as what they're saying is interesting that will carry the reader through. If you're writing a comic book, you can't do an entire issue where two people are in a room talking. The artist is not going to know how to tell that in a way that will make it visually interesting. I mean, I, I actually wrote a story like that one time. I wrote a Batman story. The premise of the story was that the Penguin had kidnapped Commissioner Gordon's wife, and he had her in a death trap somewhere in Gotham. And they had managed to capture the penguin, but they didn't know where the wife was. And the trap was set to go off at midnight. Mm -hmm. And in the time of the story, it was 
11.35, something like that. They had the bat signal on and Batman was not responding to the bat signal. And Commissioner Gordon has 35 minutes, has 25 minutes to break the penguin and find out where his wife is to rescue her. It was an 18-page story, 16 pages of which took place in an interrogation room. It was the penguin and it was Gordon and they were in a room. We had a hell of a time getting artists to do it because the editor loved the story and he was sending around to different artists and all of them were going, I have no idea how to draw this. And I understand it was written in full script, so I told them what to do. But right. nevertheless, they had no idea how they could tell it in a way that would make it visually interesting. The artwork was finally done by Michael Gilbert and P. Craig Russell, and they did a terrific job. But yeah, you know, you have to be very careful to tell a story visually. If you're telling a movie, if you're telling a story via a movie, yeah, you can have two people sitting in a room and talking to each other. But unless you're writing My Dinner with Andre, the scene better go two, three minutes tops. And then mm. you're going to want to go to someplace else. So you just have to be aware of the format that you're doing and the restrictions or limitless potential of whatever it is you're writing. That's probably why my favorite format for telling stories is actually novels because I have the most freedom. I can, I can change scenes. I can change tense. I can change characters. I can change point of view. I can do whatever, you know, sometimes within the same chapter and I can do all of this with a novel and not be worried that I'm going to lose the freaking you know, reader. Right. Comic book. What? Yeah. Not to mention, you know, I have an unlimited budget. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I always say that the special effects budget for my Star Trek novels is $500 million. Why not? It costs no, it costs no more for them to produce me describing a planet blowing up than it is to have two people sitting in a room chatting. Yeah. So, you know, that, that makes my life certainly a hell of a lot easier. I, you mentioned your Star Trek novels, and I've got to say, one of my... Uh... My father got me addicted to Star Trek when I was a kid. I think that's how it happened for several And people. heroin. He never mentions the heroin. <laughs> well, I got better off of one of them. The Star Trek I, I'll never shake. Um, okay. the, uh, All right, now I'm going to do, I'm gonna do uh, a repeat of a previous episode. He also got him hooked on space truckers. That's not true. <laughs> um, but it's I, I wanted to say. a movie from the 90s. I don't know if you know it. It's directed by Stuart Gordon, who did a lot of work for uh, Charles Band. But uh, No, I don't know it. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Auburn, you've missed nothing. <laughs> you you uh you actually wrote one of my favorite star and it's actually if I tell people if you're gonna read a Star Trek novel to read this one, because I love the original series and the character that never the villain that never got the due he deserved is Trelane. And you wrote Q Squared. Ah. And that is and, and again, I love this book because you, you like you mentioned the unlimited budget, which automatically made me go, Oh, Q yes. Squared. Because you have three different timelines, and you explain yes. where Trelane gets his name from. He's he's a rogue Q who's who yeah. Q was supposed. And well, I'm, the thing was when I was watching Encounter at Farpoint, and Q showed up, I'm sitting there going, "This is Trelane. What the hell? This is this is the Squire of Gothos. I've seen him before. Now." I will say that in subsequent episodes, and thanks to the brilliant acting of John Delancey, 
they certainly managed to take the character far further than his origins would have indicated. So I will definitely give them props for that. But nevertheless, his close resemblance to Q was the first thing that occurred to me when I'm watching Encounter at Farpoint. So when I later came up with the idea of actually establishing a link between Q and Trelane, it seemed a really reasonable thing to do. The thing I will always remember about Q squared is that I had three different timelines. And as I was telling each story, I did nothing to, in, to distinguish the characters one from the other. I came up with cute little authorial ways to let the reader know which timeline we were in. But other than that, you know, Picard was Picard was Picard. And then I slammed, the, the climax of the book, I slammed all, the, ga the, all the, the galaxies together. And then I went, shit, because I had going like, how the hell am I going to be able to let the reader know which Picard this is, which Riker this is? Um, you know, I really felt like I maybe should just go back and, and label them Picard A and Picard B and Picard C. But, you know, I didn't do that. But nevertheless, I still will always remember just writing that and thinking, I have really screwed the pooch on this this time. Well, you, you created a great novel as a fa for me as a fan because ah. uh, the uh, I love, I believe it's one part of the book you have, uh, uh, you know, people realizing that something is off people. And then like the third universe, it's, uh, you know, somebody in 10 forward pours a cup of coffee and that's it. It's just the end of the chapter. Oh, no, no, no. And not just that. I had a, I had one series. I had one series of three sequences. One of which was Guinan. A second of which was Guinan. And the third of which was a woman named Karen Johnson, which if you know anything, you know that that's Whoopi Goldberg's real name. So yeah, what the hell? Why not? Um, but yeah, so I, I I had a lot of fun with that. But keeping them all separate and when we got oh, yeah. to the climax of the story was probably one of the toughest things I've ever undertaken as a writer. Well, me and a, a good friend of mine when we when this came out and we first read it, we we really appreciated uh, the conversation you had of the datas having conversations about how their timelines were different. So, oh yeah, again, that was. Uh, uh, again, if you've never read it and you're a Star Trek fan, you owe yourself a favor. Read Q Squared because I go back to it. Howling Mad and Ed, I go back to often just simply because they're always fun. And it's yep. always that unique view of what could have been. And, and for me, like I said, Trelane, I can remember when the action figure of Trelane came out. That was the one I wanted. Everybody else yes. was like, Where are you gonna get? And I'm like, no, I need Trelane. Trelane, because it's the one that my dad liked as a, when I was a kid. And I was yeah. like, you know, I got to get Trelane. So thank you and, for Yeah, and the great thing was Star Trek set it up for itself. I mean, for example, in Where No Man Has Gone Before, they have Kirk's gravestone. And it says James R. Kirk. Yeah. You know, it says it right on there. So well, I w uh, Yeah. Go well, back. Go back and look where no man has gone before. It says James R. Kirk. So to me, that indicated that that was a parallel universe Kirk. When you brought in Star Trek Five, <laughs> um, you brought in Star Trek Five. I love the way you kind of build in the Star Trek Five villain and, and connect that to uh, Q trying to get back to oh, where yeah. Q be. And so I, 
as as a fan, I was like, oh, it's building in, it's taking all of my, well, what does this really mean? And it, you completed a lot of circles for me as a fan. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. This is an actual question that I asked you at Frankfurt Con that you had a fascinating answer about, and I think are always oh God. enjoy it. No, okay. no, you talked about it at length, and I really appreciate it. Okay. And it was, the, and it's something that's basically now. I, I don't know that we see them that much. Novelization of films. Yeah. And you've done several. I have. And I'm curious if you could talk to our audience or us about what, how much leeway you get. Is it dependent on the film, the producers? things of that nature, how much that are changed because you get the script, you're writing yes. the book that, and we all know pre-production, production and post-production, that movie looks like a over here. And then it's now not past B we're talking about X, Y, and Z yeah. different than what it looked like. It over here. really depends on the producer. Yeah. I'll give you a several. I, I also really, I just think I should mention that Alan Dean Foster said something that I thought was brilliant. Mm-hmm. which is that if you are, if as a writer, you take a screenplay and make it into a really good book, yeah, you are described as a talented hack. <laughs> if as a writer, you take a book and make it into a really good screenplay, they give you an Oscar. That's true. <laughs> it has its own category. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. Um, I, will, I will give you two stories. One for Thank a... You novelization that I did not write one that I did um Road to Perdition a feature film starring Tom Hanks did quite well at the Oscars Mm -hmm. taken from a graphic novel written by Max Allen Collins Mm -hmm. the producers and the book publisher were wise enough to bring in Al to write the novelization now a novelization of a screenplay requires you to put additional things in because the average screenplay is only about 120 pages. An average book manuscript is 350. So obviously you have to come up with your own stuff. Now, the great thing was Al had all kinds of backstory that he had come up with in developing Road to Perdition. And he thought, well, this is perfect. This will be the opportunity for me to bring in all the backstory that was alluded to in the graphic novel, but that was not able to show. And he wrote like an 85,000 word manuscript. And they sent it to the producers and the producers said, no, you have to cut anything that's not in the screenplay. And the editors went, what? Are you out of your mind? Why would we do that? And they said, we only want it in the book if it's in the screenplay. And the editor said, but the author wrote the graphic which the screenplay is based. (laughs) They said, we don't care. And poor Al had to go back through his book and delete every single thing that he had come up with that was not there. His manuscript went from being 85,000 words to 50,000. Wow. So... As a matter of fact, later on, I was hired to write the novelization of The Rocketeer. And, and Al desperately said, don't do it. You want to stay the <laughs> hell away from them. But no, I had no problem with that. I was hired to write, and this was my first novelization, The Return of Swamp Thing. <laughs> well, I mean... No, no, if, no, no. I have, I have going, a story. No, no. If you're going to adapt a classic film... 
All I can say about Return of Swamp Thing is it is a staple of my childhood. <laughs> We've talked about so, it on here many times. They yeah. sent me the screenplay. Nowadays, you have to go to the publisher and sit there with the screenplay, and you have to write it while you're in the office. Yeah. But in those days, they sent me the screenplay. I'm reading the screenplay. <laughs> By halfway through the screenplay, I'm feeling ill. By the time <laughs> I'm getting to the end, blood is coming out of my eyeball. <laughs> And I say to myself, okay, <clears throat> I can do one of two things here. I can either just go, he said, she said, and not put my name on this thing. <laughs> just do it with a pseudonym. Or I can fix it. And I didn't know I wasn't supposed to fix it. <laughs> I had no clue. I didn't know that the screenplay is supposed to be the final word. So I fixed it. I <laughs> left out scenes that were just too stupid for words. I fixed scenes that were necessary to move the plot along. I came up with far better scenes to move the story. I completely changed the ending. I swiped one of Alan Moore's endings. Do you remember, do you remember the, the Swamp Thing issue where the Swamp Thing winds up becoming an entire mountain range oh man I'll... i am going to I, they will know better than i james do you, go yeah go ahead i wound <laughs> up building that into the movie it would have cost the entire budget of the film for that sequence alone but i didn't care and so <laughs> you know i put that into the book i completely changed everything and the editor sent the book to michael uslin who was the producer of the film and Mike read my manuscript and his response, I mean, he could have called for a complete page one rewrite. Instead, Mike's response was, wow, I really wish we'd filmed this. <laughs> <laughs> and, the and, and the book saw print exactly as I wrote it. And a couple months later, DC editors were doing a Q&A at, at the New York Comic Book Convention. And they were asked, Oh, San Diego? My wife says it was San Diego. And they were asked, the Swamp Thing movie, you know, what the hell? And Bob Greenberger said, the entire response was, skip the movie, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, whether, you know, what happens to the book winds up depending upon the producer. I mean, I've, I've written, I have written novelizations where they want me to stick to the script, right. to the script. Um, on the other hand, I did the uh, I did the novelization of Battleship. And if you read, if you if you watch the movie, we've unfortunately yeah. I have unfortunately seen it. Uh, yeah, no, no, nothing against you. It's it's just such a piece of shit. Wait, is Return to Swamp Thing better? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh boy, because that's a tough question. No, and I would <laughs> say it is because at least Return of Swamp Thing has some sort of interesting. At least Swamp Thing, it's that Swamp Thing. I yeah. mean, Battleship doesn't even have fucking Battleship. Do you well, know what I mean? it's just, if you notice, it's Transformers from Space called Battleship. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you notice about Battleship, we never find out the alien's name. Right. Uh -uh. We never find out why they're invading earth i mean at least in every other invasion movie they come up with some bullshit reason 
Yep. I mean, you know, in Independence Day, we're here for your resources. Our resources? Like what? <laughs> what, do you, what do we have that you need? Water? Yep. There's other planets with water, dude. I mean, what the hell? You know, but we never find out who the aliens are, why they're attacking Earth, what the hell their plan is, what do they want? Nothing. So I note, I noticed all this, and I said to my editor, can I come up with backstories for the aliens? <laughs> and the editor asked the producers, and the producers came back and said, sure. Whatever you come up with, we're fine with that. I went, okay. <laughs> so my novelization was a hell of a lot of fun because I was able to develop the entire alien culture. I came up with characters. I came up with warfare. I came up with internecine warfare among the aliens. I came up with the reason why they were invading Earth. I came up with an entire novel that I thought was actually pretty cool. Indeed, the battleship characters always became secondary to all the cool stuff I came up with for the aliens. And the producers did not give the slightest of shits about it. So, how bad was that screenplay? Was it was it close to the movie we saw? Yeah, actually, it was. Oh, although, that's although they did actually take out the best line. As his battleship was sinking, Taylor Kitsch yelled, "You sons of bitches! You sunk my bat!" And then he goes under <laughs> to get the line out. And they cut that. And they going, cut out the whole. Oh my I god! Why the reason to make the movie? Did you cut the best line That's in the entire the script. Reason to make the movie? That would at least say once you left after spending 10, 15 bucks on a ticket, you'd it'd be pissed about it. At least you could go, well, sons of bitches, there was that was, one funny scene. It was the whole reason you played the board game, so you could say that line. <laughs> sons of bitches, you sunk my back, and he didn't get the movie. whole word out. It was like it was like Captain America at the end of, of Avengers: Age of Ultron. Avengers, yeah. uh, yep. <laughs> or or Aunt May at the end of Homecoming. What the fuck? Yep, you know? yep, 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 yep. It was the same thing. You suck my bow. <laughs> and they cut it. I was By the so way, Aunt May's off. Aunt May's reaction at the end of uh, Homecoming was my reaction to Age of Ultron after that line. <laughs> ah, <laughs> connections. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it great when he finally said it in Endgame? Oh, we, we talked about it in an episode. Literally, uh, so I was in the middle of nowhere on, on my job, at, at, uh, for my job, and I went to a theater that night to watch it because I had to see it. And then right. as soon as he said it, I was in, there was like three other people, and I literally jumped in my, up to my seat and go, yes! <laughs> I'd say I had more fun watching Endgame than I have watching any other film. Ever. I mean, just in terms of audience reactions. Yeah. I mean, when Cap, when when you see Mjolnir flying through the air and Captain America catches it, yeah, the audience yeah. went absolutely batshit out of their minds. <sighs> you know, uh, that was just you know, so, and Thor, you could not even hear Thor saying, "I knew it," <laughs> because people were going out of their minds with glee that Cap is standing there holding Mjolnir. Like, I knew it. You know, I, I think it's really interesting because uh, I, uh, and, and another reason that I, I have great appreciation for you and Harlan Ellison and, and several different creators and all this stuff is because you all got me through high school because ah, I was a comic book nerd. the heroine. I was the geek. And space I was, truckers. Thanks, Chad. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was, 
and and it's funny to me now that uh i see people that quite frankly used to pick on me and bully me and you know whatever and they're all like you know the avengers are awesome and i'm like yeah we could have had that conversation 20 years ago oh yeah well you have to understand when i was a teenager you know when you know before you guys were born um you know the concept necessarily we're getting up there sir i appreciate you being (laughs) kind but the the um the concept of comic books of superheroes it was all kid stuff right um now the geeks have inherited the world i mean if you look at the top 50 box office movies in the history of films 48 of them are science fiction or fantasy or comic books yeah i mean the Big Bang Theory helped really identify the concept of geek culture taking over the world. Right. I mean, it's it's really a little bit nuts. I I, I really have enjoyed because my son is eight, and he's like, "Oh, can we watch like comic book movies when you were a kid?" And I was like, "We can <laughs> watch Darkwing Duck." And then I'm going to show you the Captain America, and we were glad to get it where he has a clear shield and. Uh, he's J.D. Oh, Salinger. And, you know, I was like... And no, we, no, Matt Salinger. J.D. Yeah, Salinger's yeah, son. Yeah, yep. yeah. J.D. Salinger's son. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, but I was like, we were still pumped. To, God. To, I can remember yeah. I rented that on video cassette my, to where my dad was like, you can get any other thing you want. I will almost let you go to the adult section, but do not bring that movie home again. <laughs> uh, God, the Captain America movie was just horrific. Yeah. But, yeah I mean, yeah, so, I, I, my favorite moment in that film Captain America is strapped to a rocket and he suddenly grabbed the Red Skull's hand and the Red Skull, he's holding it so tight that the Red Skull cannot free his hand (laughs) and the Red Skull pulls out a knife. Now, does he stab Captain America to get him to let go? No, he cuts off his own hand. (laughs) What? Are you out of your mind? He's right there in front of you stab captain america you know if it's okay oh well he's wearing armor fine stab him in the face (laughs) not to argue with the great peter david but it's all about choices and that was an interesting (laughs) choice (laughs) actors will tell you it's about choices and that was an interesting choice it just drives me nuts when i'm watching a movie and the writers are clearly not thinking. No. Right. I mean, I still, when I first saw Alien, a movie that lots of people loved, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, why don't they just abandon the ship? And then they say, we should abandon the ship. And they go, we can't. We only have enough escape room for four people. And I'm going, did they learn nothing from the Titanic? <laughs> Are you kidding me? There's like nine people on this ship and they don't have a means of getting nine people off the ship. <laughs> you know, what happens if the ship is breaking down and they have to abandon it? Oh, too bad. Half of them are going to die. Are you nuts? <laughs> that That's bother you worse than her going back for the cat. That's my second grievance. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, she, that, it's an interesting that, choice, Mr. David. That, that well, the 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 first thing was what threw me out of the film. Then Ripley, who was willing to let one of her own crewmen sit outside the ship for twenty four hours, yep. 
drops everything to re rescue the cat. And I also love that they that their that their means to blow up the ship, the button to blow up the ship, is in the heart of the ship. <laughs> no. If you're really thinking of installing a self-destruct, and why in God's name you would, I have no clue. That's always a great, but why does the, but why does if, the mad scientist if, thing yeah, blow up? Right. If you're going to put a self-destruct button into your ship, where are you going to put it? Next to the exit door. <laughs> <laughs> you, push the, you, push the, you push the button, buy ship, get into the thing, and you're gone. <laughs> you don't put it in the heart of the ship. So that you have to run as far from the exit as you possibly can. <laughs> now I knew this was going to be fun, but I didn't know you're going to shit on a classic. I just, I, 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 there's so See, much umbrage. Why, there's so much umbrage. I can't lift it. <laughs> that's why I liked Aliens. Yeah, that was a much better thought out film. I say we. I say we. You know, get out of here and nuke them from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Yeah. Which they then try to do. The fact that the aliens blow up the jump ship is beyond their ability to control, but you could see the aliens doing that. Right. So the fact that they're screwed is not because they didn't think, let's get off of this planet. It's because the aliens were one step ahead of them. So, you know, that film, which a lot of people dismiss as, oh, it's just an army in space. At least aliens make sense. Well, it it is, Cameron was a genius in the fact that he was yeah. going to do a sequel, only he was going to do a different movie. Yes. Yeah, he, he absolutely it, it, did. Totally different film. Yeah, the and first film is essentially a haunted house in space. It's a haunted house picture in space that is yeah. directed brilliantly. I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, it directed. was brilliantly directed. The the yes. the, uh, the story was total crap. I mean, <laughs> I would definitely have come up with with some way around that that stuff that they came up with. Aliens, on the other hand, was a great film. You know, I still remember I first saw it when I was out for the San Diego Comic-Con. Uh -huh. And I will always remember that San Diego is pretty darn near Mexico. So apparently there was a sizable number of either Spanish speaking or Mexican folks in the audience. The reason I know this is because they started running the closing credits. Do you remember who played Private Vasquez? Yeah, she is not who you think she is. Jeanette Goldstein. Yep. Her name comes rolling past, and three-quarters of the audience erupts in infuriated Spanish. <laughs> Jeanette Goldstein? <laughs> it was clear that every Spanish and Mexican guy had fallen in love with Vasquez and thought find me a girl I could bring home to kick my mother's ass. <laughs> and then, you know, and they thought her name would be, you know, on, on, you know, Angeline Garcia or something like that. No, it's Jeanette Goldstein. As yeah, Jewish a name as you can possibly interpret. And oh my God, were the Mexican and Spanish audience pissed off about that. I will always <laughs> treasure that. People never realize she's actually the she's the, not the stepmom but the foster mom for uh, Edward Furlong in Terminator Two. It's it's this oh yeah actress, but I mean she's a fantastic actress, obviously a great character actress, but no oh and she's and she's the mother of a little girl in tight of a little girl in Titanic. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I mean oh she's a wonderful actress. I have so many fond movie memories of San Diego. 
Really? Did, yeah. Um, I went to see Independence Day. Okay. Yeah. And tear it apart, sp- sir. At, no, 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 no. I got no. It has nothing to do with that. And I got spotted when I got in. Now, a week or two before, I had written a but I digress column, in which I mentioned how one of the games I like to play is. How long does it take before Coca-Cola shows up in a movie? (laughs) Ghostbusters is right at 20 minutes. Yeah. And people were shouting, Peter, we're going to be looking for Coca-Cola. And I went, oh, great. Because, you know, what happens if it's just Pepsi or something like that? Seven minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Goldblum and his father are walking through an office that's and right. they stop in front of a Coca-Cola machine. When they walked and then stopped in front of the Coca-Cola machine, the audience went out of its mind. And I stood up and bowed to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and it was perfect because Coca-Cola was throughout that film. Remember uh, Will Smith's character, I think it was Will Smith, shoots a Coca-Cola off of a flying saucer. Right? Yep. Remember? So Coke was yep. throughout that film. It was the ideal movie. And I just and I looked like a freaking genius because when they stood in front of the Coke machine, everyone went, Oh my god, he's right. <laughs> he's freaking right. That leads me to a question I and that I didn't really have written down, but I want to talk to you about it because um okay. I've been doing this this very specific it's Lexington Comic Con, which is fairly sizable considering it's Lexington. It's actually sure. bigger than Louisville's and Cincinnati's, and they, really, okay. it, it, it's about thirty, about thirty thousand. They're probably going to raise it to forty thousand to redo in the convention center. So pretty good considering it's in Kentucky. It's not even the biggest city in Kentucky, and uh, the owners are friends of ours. Okay, it was supposed to be in March, and it's one of the bigger shows. It is the biggest show I do, and I, I love doing. It. And of course, of ever, the world that we live in got moved, and now it's got. Yeah. Moved. And now it's canceled till next yeah. year. And <clears throat> uh, we had a guest on last night. We were talking. He's about to do his first convention. Um, he is in Picard. And he dub- he doubles and is the stunt double for Patrick Stewart. And he's done many okay. other shows. And he's, I was like, you're going to be great. He's doing the, James, he's doing the Lexington. Uh, Lex- he's the doing Las Vegas. The Las Vegas. Uh, so, well, if it happens. If it happens. So I was kind of wondering about, you've done many conventions <laughs> yeah what ha, talk can you talk a little bit about it i don't want to be so hacked as such a hack question of do you like doing conventions do you like talking to people because there's positives and negatives to it there's positives and negatives to it sure. for me and i'm no one right who just does these small ones so can you talk let, about let me tell you one incident yeah okay i was at a convention and the convention was over and I was walking around the dealer's room with a friend of mine, Tom Galloway. And Tom said, wow, you know, you made a lot of people happy this weekend. And I said, yeah, but you know what? You're not going to hear from them. You're going to wind up hearing from some guy who I managed to piss off somehow. <laughs> That's the damn And Tom truth. says, that's a really negative way to look at things. And I said, I've been doing this a long time. Trust me. And at that moment, a guy comes up and, I, and he's carrying a comic book. He says, uh, Mr. David, could you sign this comic book? And I looked at it. It was not a comic book that I had written. It was not published by a company I'd ever heard of. I'd had nothing to do with this comic book. I'd never even heard of it. Yeah. And I said, I don't really like 
to sign comic books that I didn't write. I feel like I'm taking credit for it. Do you have anything else? And he says, no, no, could you just sign this? And I said, I really would prefer to sign something else. Do you have another comic with a character that I wrote? Do you have a program book? Do you have a napkin? Do you have a sheet of paper? Do you have a sheet of paper? Yeah. And he says, no. For, and he says, I don't care. I just want you to sign. And I said, yes, but I care. So do you have anything else I can sign? And the guy says, no, forget it. Sorry to bother you. And he stalks off. And Tom is there like this. <laughs> and I said, there he goes. <laughs> he cut it late. But there he goes. That guy is now going to go online. Yep. And he's going to say, I walked up to Peter David and he wasn't doing anything else. But he could not be bothered to sign my comic book. What an asshole. And other people are immediately going to pipe up. Yeah, I heard that about him. Mm -hmm. you know? So there is an element of risk when you go to a comic book convention because you can wind up getting yourself into so much trouble. Right. If you just... For example. Yeah. For example, how would you get yourself... Is it misspeaking while you're doing a panel, saying something wrong to a fan? What well, would you do? For, well, first off, like that guy. Yes. Right? I mean, but he's an asshole who's a troll, guy. though. I mean... Yeah, no, except he didn't see himself that way. He saw himself as a fan who wanted an autograph from someone who was too fabulous to sign it for. Yeah. But on the other hand... Comic book conventions can be wonderfully invigorating. Yes. I mean, writing is a very lonely profession. You mm -hmm. know, in every, in pretty much every other job, you have other people that you interact with. You have office spaces. You know, if you get stuck on something, you can shout over to someone and say, hey, could you come over and help me with this? In writing, it's you and the computer screen. And that's it. You know, I mean, Yes, you can discuss things with other people. I've discussed story elements with my wife on any number of occasions, and she's been very helpful. But ultimately, you're by yourself when you're working. And interaction with the fans is wonderful because you can see the impact that your work has on people. I mean, for instance, I did a storyline in which I was bringing back the character of Shatterstar in X-Factor. And we had been kind of hinting around for about 10 years that Shatterstar and Richter were a gay couple. But we'd never been specific about it. And, I brought, and I'm bringing back Shatterstar. And I said, you know what? It's the 21st century. Why are we still screwing around about this? And when Shatterstar and Richter finally come face to face, they kiss. To me, it was no big deal. It was panel five of a six-panel page. You know, it wasn't like a big full-page thing. It was panel five. Nevertheless, the internet exploded over this. Um, and like 95% of the response we got was very positive and very supporting. And what I found interesting was that I had this exact same conversation with a number of different fans at various conventions. And they told me that I had saved their lives, that they were gay, yeah. 
and they were closeted and they didn't want to tell their parents they didn't want to tell their friends that they were considering suicide rather than living with this and then they saw the massively supportive fan reaction to outing Shatterstar and Richter. And their attitude was, if people are that willing to accept gay comic book characters, maybe it's time for me to be honest. And in every case, they said they went to their parents and they went to their friends and they said, I'm gay. And in every case, the parents went, yeah, <laughs> we know. Right. We know you are. The friend said, finally, I have this great guy I want to set you up with. I mean, you know, right. they didn't understand that they were fooling no one, that their parents loved them, their friends loved them, and their attitude was, you know, we are going to continue to be your parents and your friends and support you, whatever you are. And that they couldn't believe that they had lived their lives in secret for so long and that they were actually considering killing themselves rather than coming clean with the people who had absolutely no issue with it whatsoever. I mean, are there parents out there who would say, you're no son of mine? Yeah, mm -hmm. they right. very likely are. But the vast majority of us we just want our kids to be happy. Whatever gender you want to be. I mean, I've always told all my daughters, I don't care who you wind up with as long as they're fanish. You know? Um, you, can't, you can't get together with a mundane. No way. But other than that, you know, fine with it. Have it be the same gender, a different gender, fine whatever it is that makes you happy. You know, I, I have interacted so positively with so many fans. I would never forget this one fan at San Diego who comes up to me and he says, Mr. David, that conversation we had in the hallway two years ago changed my life. I had no idea who the kid was. I had no recollection of the, of the conversation at all. None. Yeah. But I sure as hell wasn't about to say that to him because I'm worried he might blow his brains out. And I said, I, you know, I've often wondered how things turned out with you. Perfect. And I listened to him tell me about his whole life, and it was fine. He didn't, he didn't need to quiz me. He just assumed that I would remember because it was so important to him. So naturally, it should have been as important to me. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, he doesn't understand that I don't remember the fans, but I tell them, I've said this a number of times, it's a good thing if I don't remember you. Oh, God, isn't that the truth? No, 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 no. A very specific reason. 99% of fans are sweet, nice, supportive. Yep. They blend into this one mass of niceness. Yep. 1% mm -hmm. of them are flaming assholes. <laughs> Yeah. Them I remember. They will come toward me and I'll go, oh, Christ, it's this guy. They sear themselves into my occipital lobe. <laughs> so if I remember you, that's a problem because yeah. you're a dick. I, I, I completely understand. <laughs> you know, so if I do not remember you, that's a compliment. 
Indeed, I've said this so many times that people said to me, you told me that before. Yes, I did. It's, it's what I say. It's a standard thing that I say, and it's absolutely true. I got I got I got to ask your movie opinion on something and <laughs> since you you okay. just told that great story about Shatterstar. Oh, okay. Um as 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 the emotional, you know, impact of that character and the stories you heard. How did you feel about how he was portrayed in Deadpool 2? 2 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I was not thrilled with that. I didn't think you I would mean, be. I get why they did it, you know, that they're publicizing this whole new team of characters who they then kill inside of two minutes. <laughs> mission. It's like, okay, I get it. Cute. Nicely done. It's not called Deadpool and Friends. It's called Deadpool. <laughs> so they killed everyone except the mainline X-Men. All right. Yeah. yeah, very cute. I'm still pissed off. Yeah, I figured you would. <laughs> I was going to say, and, and as you were t- uh, talking about that story, you were actually recognized by Glad, I believe, for that storyline, yeah. correct? Oh, yeah. I, I re- <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. At the same time that I was writing that story, I was also writing a video game that was based on a book written by Orson Scott Card. Orson is a notoriously, let's say, homophobic individual and is not afraid to make that known. Now, we were aware with his affiliations with Salt Lake. Yeah. There was nothing to do with homosexuals or gays in the book that he wrote. Homosexuality had nothing to do with the video game I wrote. There was no connection to his opinions whatsoever. And yet, angry people were saying that I should be boycotted because I had worked with Orson Scott Card. So at the exact same time, that Glad was giving me an award for how I portrayed gays in comics. I had angry gays saying that I should be boycotted because of a video game that had nothing to do with homosexuality that was based on a book by a noted uh, homophobe who wrote nothing about homosexuality in the book. You know, so I always thought that, you know, the timing of that was kind of amusing. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished. No, no kidding. None. The uh, I, I, one other, a couple other things actually, I wanted to ask you about was you have co-created several characters um, that I believe you have one of the only um, Star Trek action figures that were made. I believe actually uh, through Wizard uh, that was Captain produced. Calhoun. Yes. Yeah. So, so how did this come about, and how did you end up creating a, an entire Star Trek series that we've at least yet, not seen on screen? Uh, the actual fundamental concept for New Frontier was not mine. It was the editor of the Star Trek line at the time, a guy named John Ordover. John was inspired by the fall of the Soviet Union. And he basically said, what would happen if we had the equivalency of a Soviet Union falling apart in the Star Trek universe? And he came up with the notion that this this star system basically winds up having the same kind of political downfall as the USSR. And that one starship is sent in to try and ride her on this whole thing. 
And John approached me about writing it. And that sounded tremendously exciting to me. It was going to be called Star Trek, The New Frontier. And I went, okay. He said, we want to have um, Shelby in there. She's going to be a transitional character. We want to have Shelby in the series. And we want to have Dr. Salar. Other than that, you can do whatever you want. And I wound up developing the characters for the new frontier. I developed the crew of the Excalibur. Um, I developed all the storylines. You know, I developed the, the full the full empire that was going to wind up crashing. And initially, Pocketbooks was unsure of how the series was going to do. Paramount's attitude was it was going to fail. They said, "Really? Yes." Their attitude was, "Star Trek fans are not going to support a series of books that is not based on the TV show. They will not support an original crew." Now, the funny thing was, at the time that we were launching New Frontier, Voyager came out, and Voyager was not fondly received by the fans at all. It's still my least favorite. And we wound up benefiting from Voyager backlash because annoyed and irritated Star Trek fans were going, God, I really can't stand Voyager. <laughs> and all the literate Trek fans said, you want to experience good Star Trek again? Come read the New Frontier series. And our sales skyrocketed. And overall, it went very, very well for a number of years. So this is a very mundane question. James, I, we're all three Trekkers, Trekkies, but James is obviously the Trek person and has the most amount of knowledge out of the three of us. And you're I'm not I'm sure assuming, why you think it's obvious, but okay. <laughs> well, he has the most Star Trek questions. But okay. I... I'm curious because I'm assuming you were a fan of the show as a child yeah, or when you were younger, Brian. What are your feelings about the subsequent series? And what are your feelings about the uh, Voyager, uh, Voyager, shit, sorry, about Discovery and Picard? Um, I still have to say I, I remain faithful to original Trek. You know, it, that was the first, you know, the, the first one. Yeah. I would certainly say it had the most unique crew. And the division of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy was brilliant. Agreed. You had Spock to represent human logic. You had McCoy to represent human emotion. And you had Kirk, the everyman, in between the two of them. That's why whenever you'd have briefing room sequences, you'd have Spock saying we should do this. You have McCoy saying we should do that. And you have poor Kirk in the middle trying to decide which way to go. You had living incarnations of heart emotion, you know, of logic of the heart right. and the and the need to actually decide what you're going to do. This is as opposed to next generation, where in the briefing rooms, which they didn't call the briefing rooms, they called what did they call it? Ready room. The, no, not the ready. No, 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 not no. the ready room. Oh, uh, I don't remember. Conference rooms. Conference yeah. rooms. 
basically what would happen is that Riker would say something, Troy would say something, Jordy would say something, and then Picard would say, okay, let's do that. You know, Jesus Christ, it wasn't even briefings anymore. It was just people sitting around a table having a conversation. Yeah. There was no conflict. Mm-hmm. And that was because Gene believed that by the time of Star Trek The Next Generation, people don't have conflict anymore. Right. That humanity right. has outgrown that. The problem is, is that the core definition of drama is conflict. conflict. Mm-hmm. That I mean, anyone will tell you that. If you take conflict out of the drama, you don't have drama. You have a, a book club. <laughs> um, Which can get really dramatic. It, yeah. <laughs> um, I thought Next Generation was kind of hit and miss. I mean, when Next Generation was clicking, it was really good. Yes. Mm-hmm. When it missed, it missed big. But then again, it was original Trek. I mean, Kirk, people keep arguing Kirk versus Picard. You know? Quit. I keep thinking about uh, Generations, right? Was that the one with Kirk and Picard? Yep. And uh, uh, the, the villain's name was what? Soren? Yes. Yeah. What? Sorak? No, Soren. No, I think it's Soren. It's my. It's yeah, my it was Soren. Yeah. They have a sequence where Soren is about to cross a bridge and Picard is standing on the other side of the bridge. And the first time they did that, you're sitting there going, wow, what's going to happen now? Right? They then wound up repeating that sequence, except this time it was Kirk. And the audience reaction was uniform. People going, okay, Sauron's getting his ass kicked now. Mm-hmm. That's it. With Picard, it's what will happen. With mm-hmm. Kirk, Kirk's going to kick him, going to kick his ass. Yep. Which yeah. Kirk then did. Right. So, you know, you know the, the bottom line is if you want something negotiated, bring in, bring in Picard. If you want something done, bring in Kirk. Right. Um, I, thought, I thought Deep Space Nine was an interesting departure. Mm-hmm. However, I'm kind of biased against it because basically they ripped off Babylon, Babylon 5. 5. Yeah. yeah. Um, Enterprise, I was really disappointed with, which is annoying because, you know, I'm, I'm a big Scott Bakula fan. And Mike Akuda actually gave me a tour of the Enterprise set when I was out in LA at one point. Mm-hmm. So I was really on board for Enterprise to be a really good series. And I was not blown away at all. I mean, you know, the fact they made it so, that they set it so far into the past of Star Trek, it's like if Roddenberry showed because Star Trek, the previous generation, who would have tuned in for that? You know, so... um, I was I was really not blown away by by Enterprise. Um, Voyager was interesting to me because they actually offered me the chance to write the first original Voyager novel, and I said, "Send me the Bible and the first few scripts," and they did. And I read the Bible and I was blown away by it. The Bible seemed 
so fascinating. And I thought this is going to be a Star Trek series like no other because the crew is going to be at each other's throats. Right. The whole series. This is going to be incredibly fascinating. It's going to be like no other Star Trek series ever done before. And then I read the first four scripts and I contacted Simon Schuster and I said, forget it. I don't want to write it. And they said, we'll give you a lot of money. I said, I don't care. I'm not going to write it. Because by script two, they had thrown out their own Bible. Mm -hmm. By episode three, the crew was indistinguishable from any other Starship crew. Agreed. Yep. And that just pissed me off because that could have been a terrific series if they had just stuck with what they had said they wanted to do. And the fact that they threw it away just seems kind of criminal to me. Mm -hmm. um, the CBS All Access shows. Um, Discovery. Uh, Discovery wasn't bad, even though I kind of saw the twists coming in the first season a oh, mile yeah. before they happened. Um, I thought the second season was more interesting because I didn't know everything that was going to happen. Plus, they left it in an interesting position. Talk about boldly going where no man has gone before. Screw this previous Star Trek stuff. They're now like, what, 900 years in the future? Yeah. I find that tremendously exciting. And I am really looking forward to the third season of this series. I assume there's a third season. Yes, yes. They're, they're, allegedly, they're doing the editing right now, and they're having to do it remotely. And I was reading today, they're trying to figure out how to do the orchestra remotely and then combine them oh my god yeah you know what just recycle the music from the that's first what i was like that use some classic star trek score that's well we're fine with that yeah I, I, I mean do you have any idea how often we heard the same damn songs in star trek by the way I mean, as soon yeah, as you no. said it that was the first thing i bet there you go all three of our minds was that yeah exactly they used it a hundred different times fine do that with, do that with, oh, with yeah. uh, discovery and roll be good so i'm really looking forward to the third season picard you know i'm really not sure i mean by the end of the season, by the end of the series, I'm not even sure what the hell the show is about anymore. <laughs> uh, on episode eight, <laughs> I'm almost done with it. Almost. I haven't seen I it. I mean, I just. I must admit, I did love in the first episode when Picard starts trying to run up a flight of stairs. I'm thinking, how old is? How, hold on. Eighty. Seventy-nine. He's getting ready to be eighty. He's almost eighty. I'm thinking. How is this 80-year-old man going to go running up these steps? Well, there's a guy named Jim Stor Tim Storms, actually, who was doing that. And he, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Enough, yes, no, I know. No, because Picard goes running up the steps. He makes it up about five, six, or seven steps. And he's like, oh, oh, and I went, perfect. <laughs> absolutely right. That's why people didn't buy Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Because Harrison Ford is simply looks too old to be doing the stuff that he did fine when he was in his 30s and 40s. Right. When Picard is out of breath running up seven flights, that would be me. <laughs> that would be me. There's no way I could go running up, you know, that many, you know, stairs. There's no freaking way. And the fact that Picard made up like six or seven steps and then had to stop and breathe. Excuse me. I thought that was perfect. 
<laughs> as the show progressed, I became more and more confused what the hell was about. And by the time we got to the last episode, I felt like I was completely lost. We had new characters, and I weren't sure where they came from. I wasn't sure what their function is. Suddenly, Legolas is a Romulan. I mean, I don't know what the hell was going on with that. Um, and they keep having Romulans and Vulcans, and I can't tell them apart. I have a hard time telling them apart, too, actually. And I, and I feel that I've I mean, watched... give one of them big eyebrows or something, you know? Well, if they're I... bleeding, they, you can tell, but that's... That... <laughs> Yeah, it it's difficult for me, and I consider myself not a, a huge Trekkie like our friend James, but I've seen all, well, as soon as I finished Discovering Picard, I've seen all of Trek. I mean, I've seen the animated series. Right. I've seen it all. Oh, God, me too. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a couple of decent, well, there's one decent one that's writ, written by D.C. <laughs> Fontana. There's one, when they yeah. go to Spock's homeworld, that's written by D.C. Fontana. Yeah, I know. No, I, was asking I, like, I like Pirates of Orion, or as they called it, Orion for some Orion. reason. Orion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How the hell they can mispronounce Orion, I can't even begin to fathom. Well, that's right up o there with... O-R-I-O-N, Orion. This is not hard. Well, that's right up there with Krypton. Well, that's just Marlon Brando. Yeah. <laughs> He's Brando. Brando, Brando, is like, Brando is like the Rudy Elf. He always gets it fast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Rudy that, Elf always gets a pass. Isn't that fun? Next week we talk about Disney, amongst many other things. Tune in for part two with Peter David. Uh.